Hey guys, welcome back. This is Tom Devlin with Midnight at the Monster Museum, and tonight we have a super special guest, a longtime friend of the Monster Museum, uh, one of my personal favorites when it comes to slashers. We're talking to C.J. Graham, the man behind the mask, Jason Voorhees himself. From Friday the 13th, Jason Lives. Tom, how are you? How's everything going at the Monster Museum? Oh man, the Monster Museum is is wonderful. It is uh, rocking and rolling, and we are always changing it. We're making it better. We've 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 added displays. We've uh, added a school. We're we're really you know amplifying the Monster Museum. For those of you who don't know, CJ was our first anniversary guest that we had uh, when we first opened, one year after we opened, we had a big party and a signing and we had CJ out here to sign autographs. And he was absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, we he, he was great with the fans and we had tons of fans show up and uh, it just brings a legitimacy knowing that we have an actual horror icon that comes to visit the Monster Museum. No, I, I appreciate it. And I'm excited to be on the... Uh... Midnight at the Monster Museum with you, Tom. Uh, this is great. Congratulations on your successes also. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, and there's also been random times, um, for those of you who don't know, CJ lives here on the West Coast, uh, not too far outside of Las Vegas, and he comes into town from time to time to use the airport or go to the casinos, and um, he, uh, he'll he stop by here at the Monster Museum, and it's great because when he leaves, I'll just give a little nod to whoever's standing in the store and I'll be like, you do realize that was Jason Voorhees, right? That just came by and said hi. <laughs> and they, they normally don't recognize you right away without the hockey mask, you know, and you got the tattoos now. And, and uh, so for the untrained eye, you just look like a, a big bad dude, but to the trained eye, that's, that is the biggest bad dude, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, Tom, it's interesting you say that because it, it's one of those things where, and I've always used this analysis that if I showed, if I went to India and showed a picture of Tom Cruise, they all say Tom Cruise. If I showed a picture of C.J. Graham, they shrugged their shoulders. However, if I turned it around to Jason Voorhees, they'd all say Jason. Um, so they connect the dots. They just don't know the face because of the hockey mask. How crazy is it that even more so than just, just I mean, if you just held up a hockey mask, they would say Jason. Absolutely. If it was a mid-80s round hockey mask with the round holes, you hold that up anywhere in the world, and they don't say that's the Pittsburgh, you know, whoever, Flyers or whatever it is. They say Jason. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's actually amazing because, um, but, you know, it's interesting. I've been to Universal Studios with my family years ago and was walking through a store and, uh, had a consumer point at me and go, hey, you played Jason. And I kind of looked at him and go, how did you know that? Oh, I know all the Jasons. And I said, okay. Um, another true story. 
Uh, I was going through Atlanta about four years ago. TSA agents looked at my identification, looked at me and goes, are you the guy that plays Jason? And I go, yeah. Oh, man, I'm a big fan. So there are people that know the name. And of anything. course. Uh, but, again, as you indicated, as soon as you put a hockey mask up, everybody knows Jason. And if there's an affiliation, especially if you were blessed enough to be the uh, Jason Voorhees in the film, um, everybody just kind of resonates to it. it it's that, I mean, that really – I don't even know if you're familiar on how I came uh, to getting in touch with you, but I taught at a makeup effects school here in Vegas for a long time. That's what brought me to Las Vegas. And one of my students, a girl named Carrie Walker, who was a bartender, just knowing that I'm a huge horror fan and, and have been in and around the industry, told me that she used to work for Jason Voorhees. And I was like, I didn't understand what she was talking about. And then she informed me that you ran some hotels, that she was uh, bartending at one of the hotels that you ran. And right. uh, and so she told me that you lived here in Vegas. Um, I don't know if you ever did, but, but she figured you did and so i started researching you and i found uh i found your email address i'm not i'm not even sure how i got a hold of your email address but i just sent you a message with my phone number and you called me back in a couple minutes and we're like yeah i'm i'm in and around boulder city a lot i don't mind stopping by the monster museum so it was uh but it was because of your uh, later career of working with hotels that I was able to find you. I had no idea that you had uh, been involved with outside of the Hollywood world. I just knew you were Jason Voorhees and Hellcop. Yeah, I spent uh, almost 20 years in Las Vegas as a, a senior executive with uh, everything from Caesars to Steve Wynn to the Palms, George Maloof. Um, I opened up the first Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, owned by Peter Morton back wow. in the 90s. So, uh, and then the last 10 years of my career, I ran as a chief operating officer, general managers of uh, three different casino resorts in the California market. Wow. That's that's pretty impressive, going from a serial slasher to a uh, a, a hotel operator. You know, that's... Uh, that is definitely a step in the right direction when it comes to surviving in this uh, in the crazy economy we live in. But well, I, I think it's because I enjoy being deadly in charge. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about how you got to the role of Jason. I mean, um, first of all, I would say that, that Friday the 13th Part 6 is arguably one of the best Friday the 13th movies. Um, I think it's a fan favorite. I think it's one of the funnest. It's definitely the rock and roll uh, installment that fits so perfect in the in the late 80s there. Um, you've got Alice Cooper doing the soundtrack uh, and, and a lot of songs for it. He actually wrote one of my favorite songs of all time, Teenage Frankenstein, for the movie. And, uh, and of course, Behind the Mask. Um, what a, What an awesome film to end up in or, or be a part of because it's not just a throwaway Friday the 13th. It's one of the best Friday the 13th. Uh, you know, Tom, I was so uh, blessed to be part of the Friday the 13th franchise because the following is just tremendous. Um, but more importantly, part six, which, you know, um, if I may, it's one of the, what I think more of the fan favorites. It's where Jason becomes, in my mind, 
the principal of the movie, where prior to that, Jason was just a figure. Right. Uh, no, he becomes a superhero in that movie. You're rooting yeah. for Jason in that movie. Yeah, I think he steps out as when you start thinking of Friday the 13th, now you really are watching it to see what Jason does next. Uh, you know, the other thing about part six is there's maybe two or three four-letter words in it. Other yeah. than that, there's no nudity. Um, and I always say, you know, who, you know, who, who has an opening scene like James Bond, right? His thirteen part six. Right. Who has, who has a rock and roll hall of famer doing the music? Alice Cooper, part six. Um, I always say, who came back to life like Frankenstein? Part six. Part six. And as as ironic as it may be, I'm the only Jason with a Batman utility belt. Yeah. Yep. It's so. And- you have know, that sweet kind of chrome machete there for a minute. Like, you have a really nice machete. <laughs> yeah, you know, darts, machetes. I mean, I got a little bit of everything on that utility belt. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it leaves it wide open from part six into how you could bring a part seven and or a part eight if you wanted to connect the dots uh, for connectivity. Um, you know, at, those, at that time, I don't think we'd come around and realize the value of putting, you know, all the different films in connection. Um, when you start looking at the films that have come out with Wonder Woman and all the way back through uh, the last 15 years, um, they're writing two or three of them in a row and shelving two or three of them and then bringing them back out to connect with what they put out three, four, or five years ago. Jason was kind of a random each one. Um, I'm hoping if they get back into the sequence that they'll do a Harry Potter, so to speak, where they'll put three of them together by three different uh, directors and writers, but they will connect, uh, get them written, get them shot, put them on the shelf, and then distribute them over a four or five year window. I uh, I have always loved the Tommy Jarvis story too, so it was very cool to see the Tommy Jarvis story continued. Really, part four and part six are probably my two favorite Friday movies. So. Seeing that, uh, seeing that connectivity there with Tommy Jarvis, skipping part five, and I do really like part five. I just don't like how crazy they make Tommy feel in part five. Um, but but part four and part six really tie together for me. In fact, uh, we actually did a screening here at the Monster Museum of part four and six back to back, and uh, for like a midnight movie. But I I just think that. Um, you did. You, you you hit the jackpot when it came to being in the right Friday the Thirteenth movie. Um, yeah. How did you How did you get the role? And, and before you did get the role, obviously stepping into Part Six, you knew it was a successful franchise. But were you a fan? Did you Did you know what you were getting into? No, I mean I wasn't. Um, I was fortunate. I was running a nightclub in Glendale, California, a rather large nightclub, about 15,000 square feet. And I had a, a hypnotist on Thursdays, and he decided he was going to have an outside company come in and shoot uh, his show so he could edit it and go promote it to get some shows maybe into the Las Vegas market. And the interesting thing is uh, the company he selected was called Real Effects. And Real Effects, this happens to be the company that did all the special effects for part four. Right. Um, so they made a recommendation to the hypnotist about Jason coming through the screen while the subjects are under. 
And for whatever reason, they looked at me and said, well, you know, think of, if you think about it, you know, uh, you think about Ted White, 6'4", CJ, 6'4". Uh, we've got the wardrobe. We'll just put it right on CJ and it'll work. Um, and really when I say the rest is history, when I came through the screen and the people from Real Effects saw the posture and the pose that I took, um, immediately they said, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to cast you for Friday the 13th Part 6, you know. We got to get you in this, and at that point, I kind of just brushed it off. Um, lo and behold, a few months later, I get a call to go down and meet uh, the stunt coordinator and Frank Mancuso Jr. of Paramount Studios and Tom McLaughlin, the writer director. Um, so it was kind of interesting. Um, the nice thing about it for me is, you know, I was appreciative that I was selected at that point. I went in for a couple of interviews, but I was not a stunt man. So originally, they decided to go with a stunt man that. Uh, we felt comfortable with since I had no stunt experience. Uh, fortunately for me and unfortunately for the gentleman, um, they did the one scene, which is the paintball scene. Uh, and if you look at that, you'll see the midsection is a little developed differently than my midsection. And <laughs> when they came back on the daily, um, they weren't satisfied and they said, no, this isn't working in so many words. And they called me on a Friday and Monday. I was down in Covington, Georgia, um, and going forward to that point. So um, didn't know what I was getting into, um, really didn't pick up on it. And as it's become more iconic over the last 30, 35 years, um, it's just been more of an honor to be part of that sequel because anybody that knows horror, um, they know of Friday the 13th, they know of Hellcop uh, from what I played when I played Highway to Hell. They know about Leatherface, of course. They know about Freddy Krueger, and they usually know about Michael Myers and Halloween. So those four characters are somewhat the universal monsters of the 80s and into today, the 21st century. 100%. And uh, so were you pursuing acting while running that club, or you weren't even pursuing acting? You were just you were just running a club. I was just running a club. I was actually entertaining LAPD going into a testing phase to see if it was something I wanted to be involved in. Oh, wow. So that's, so, that's super interesting to me. Uh, and because I, you know, I, I mentioned to you before, as I spoke to Ari Mihailov in our first season on Midnight of the Monster Museum, he talked about working out with you before he knew you were Jason. And of course, he played Leatherface. So it's just kind of cool to think of Leatherface and Jason working out together. But I kind of always figured you guys were budding for auditions, but but to hear that you uh, kind of more or less lucked into the role of a lifetime, uh, which sent you into a Hollywood uh, uh, run there because you did get to play Hellcop in in Highway to Hell and you did do some commercials, um, so that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I think for me personally, um, these these actors and actresses they work really hard, and a lot of them that's their original goal and. I do believe sometimes you just get lucky and sometimes you're the best qualified. Um, but at the same time, um, I think a lot of great qualified people just get missed because of the volume. Um, I was fortunate and uh, I'm very humble about it, you know, like working with Part 6, working with Tom Matthews and some of the people I've had a chance to work with even over the years uh, in the casino industry. Um, you know, opening up Steve Wynn's joint, uh, the new wind that was opened up here about 15 years ago and working yeah. for uh, George Maloof at the Palms. You know, him and his family owned the Sacramento Kings. So there's a lot of people I've worked for that, you know, I was appreciative that I got to be part of different families. 
Yeah, and uh, Tom McLaughlin, I mean, what a uh, awesome director. And then Tom Matthews, of course, from uh, Return of the Living Dead. Uh, we've had a couple uh, Return of the Living Dead alumni show up in different Friday movies, um, but but that was, as Tommy Jarvis, man, Tom Matthews killed it, uh, one of my favorites. Um, and I forget her name, the female counterpart, uh, but, man, as you mentioned, there was no nudity in this movie. But for the 12-year-old that I was when I saw it, I was I was dead in love with her and her 73 Camaro. Uh, it was uh, – that that was uh, incredible. <laughs> you know, perfect Friday the 13th casting. Yeah, they did – I mean, they really did a good job of casting. Tom McLaughlin, who handled all that, of course, made, I believe, some really good decisions um, and brought in a good crew. I mean, even the one scene that's a little – Sexual with no nudity was with Darcy. Yeah, and, you know Darcy was one of the girls in the '80s uh, on MTV videos doing exercises with two other girls going around the circle, and people used to watch these girls exercising doing their aerobics on MTV. Yeah, um, yeah. So he brought a, a I very was one of those people. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you were 13, right? So, <laughs> yeah. They brought a really unique piece, uh, character together. Um, Tom Finley, of course, are there. And there were some interesting characteristics when they got back after uh, Tom McLaughlin and everybody got back. It ended up, ended up they had a little bit extra money in the budget. So uh, Frank Mancuso Jr. sent Tom McLaughlin down to uh, Griffin Park, and they added three more kills to the movie. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Um, was all the RV stuff shot in Georgia? Yes. We only had we had one RV, of course, because it is a different type of budget. And the, the main thing was that they could get everything with one shot. Once that RV got flipped, it was pretty well damaged. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a huge stunt for a Friday movie. You don't usually see big car stunts in the Friday movies, and uh, at least back then. And like you just mentioned, it was a different budget level. Back then, these movies were considered low budget. Today, if they make a Friday the 13th movie, it's $14 million. You know, it's it's a whole different ball game. But back then, I don't know what the exact price were, but they were, you know, you had to do stuff in one take, and you had to, uh, you know, shoot in remote locations like Georgia or South Carolina, places that didn't cost as much as Los Angeles. So um, without being a stuntman, how difficult was it? Did you maneuver any of the water stuff, or did you have a stuntman that did the stuff in the water? Well, everything is me. Um, there's no uh, fighting of the dice, so to speak. There's no uh, trick or track. There, it's all me. I, uh, the thing that was interesting is that it was that one of the responsibilities that I had to do all of the stunts, and the stunt coordinator, Michael Nomad, uh, was comfortable with my physical capabilities. And once we started shooting, of course, it was – it wasn't a problem for me. I was very fortunate, and I, I like to say that with pride. Um, a good friend of mine, Kane Hodder, you know, a few years ago when we were on a panel, he they asked us about our stunt background, and everybody had been to school, this and that. You know, Steve Dash talked about his school, and when it came to me, I said, well, I didn't go to school. And, and the panelists asked another question. I said, well, no, I was never done a stunt in my life. And Kane stopped us right in the middle of the panel and said, what? He goes, you never done a stunt? You weren't a stuntman? I go, no. Holy moly. <laughs> That's know that, that. And most people don't. But when they find out, you know, you're doing a half a body burn and you're underwater breathing off regulators and going through doors and yeah. you're going through walls, people kind of go, okay. 
Um, that okay. was one of the fortunate talents that I was able to pull off without hurting anybody around me or hurting myself. Well, and that's it's crazy, too, because by the time they got to part six, from what I understand, I work closely with uh, Warrington Gillette a lot. Uh, I do makeups for him at conventions. And uh, he was not a stunt guy. And so they had to split that part between him and Steve Dash, and there was a lot of uh, stuff between that, you know. Um, so by the time they got, I mean, Ted White, stuntman. Uh, Kane, of course, stuntman. But by the time they got to part six, it's really neat that they, they tried to go with a stuntman, and then they said, nope, let's bring the guy with the better physique that, that can sell this character. And to be honest, Kane is, is often titled with that uh, that head nod and that, that blank stare, but you have that. You're It's in part six, you know. You have that slow turn, you know. So I don't know. Uh, I think that it carries over a little bit. Well, I, you know, I love my brother Kane. I see him all the time, and we all do. We're probably the closest of all the Jasons because we've known each other since uh, like 1987. Right. Uh, and I always give him a hard time because in part seven, when he first comes out of the water and he's seen looking down the uh, the driveway or the road, he starts breathing. And the first thing I said is, Kane, he's dead. Why are you breathing? <laughs> and to this day. He still just shakes his head at me because once he started that breathing motion with his body it's and his tough. lap, he had to do it through all the four that he did. But yeah. I said, why are you breathing? You're dead. <laughs> so to this day, I give him a hard time about it. Did, was there ever any um, saltiness about the fact that they brought Kane in for part seven? Because clearly he was good friends with the director, John Beekler, who's one of my all-time heroes in life. Uh, and and Beekler wanted to work with his guy. But, uh, I mean, was there a reason that you weren't uh, – or were you considered for Part 7? Actually, I was already considered and already scheduled for Part 7. I came up, I did the same thing. And wow. John, John was comfortable with using me already at that point. Um, however, Kane had worked with him multiple times, and Kane will tell you the same story. Um, he said it on panels before that – he really wanted to pursue the Jason character. So he went to John, who he had worked for, um, convinced John that he could do it and he'd be a great asset. And then John had to go to Frank Mancuso, Paramount Studios, to get permission to change from using the same person, me, to use King. Right. And as far as your question about animosity, nah. I never, you know, again, earlier in this uh, podcast, we talked about it wasn't my career field that I was looking for. It was something I dropped into my lap. I did my job. I did it well, like being in the military. Um, but it wasn't going to be my livelihood at that point. So it didn't really phase me. Um, so I always look at it as, you know, things work out the way they're supposed to work out. Um, about three years later, I grabbed what I had made in money down there between commercials and acting and went back to Las Vegas and uh, started back in the casino industry and then grew my career all the way up to you know, general manager and chief operating officer of billion dollar resorts. Yeah. The uh and also prior to part six, uh and and part seven rather, nobody ever played Jason twice. So it probably wasn't expected by the fans, like, hey, how come that isn't the same Jason? Because it never was the same Jason. In fact they never looked the same twice. So um and which I always liked because you mentioned the James Bond 
intro, I always fashion Jason Voorhees as a horror James Bond because you get a different guy playing him. You know, you have the Roger Moore or the Sean Connery or the Pierce Brosnan, and that's kind of how I always felt about Jason Voorhees as opposed to Freddy Krueger, who was a straight run of Robert England. So uh, it probably wasn't expected to play it twice until Kane did that, and he's the only one to this day that's ever played him more than once. So uh, Correct. But, no, uh, I, I looked at it from a perspective that, um, you know, I went on right after the Part 7 and did Highway to Hell, and then uh, I enjoyed, you know, the commercials. I mean, I was fortunate enough to get a couple of beer commercials, uh, I believe an AT&T, a Colgate. Um, you know, uh, I even got a Gatorade. It was kind of fun because I would go on these calls for commercials and have my little card and you know, I didn't really care because I was running a club at night. This was a day gig. And then I'd get a call back or I'd get the part. And commercials are very lucrative. Oh, I yeah. I was just shocked of the, the residuals that I would get over 18 months usually for a beer commercial or a Colgate commercial. And they would, and they shoot so fast. You know, you're only on set two days or whatever rather than a movie for a month. So it was interesting. Uh, I remember our Colgate commercial, uh, you know, it was a half a day shoot. And here came these these silly checks for the next 18 months. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <you>. not bad. <laughs> so before we move on to Highway to Hell, um, I did, uh, as an effects artist, I have two artists that, that uh, really influenced my style that I've pulled from. And, you know, over the last 20 years, I developed my own style, but it definitely resonates in my inspirations. And one was John Beekler who directed and created the effects for part seven. But the other is a guy named Gabe Bartalos. Did you work closely with Gabe Bartalos at all on, on part six? No, I, not as much. I, my close proximity was with the real effects people, which is my person was Christopher Swift. Okay. He did all my makeup. Um, and there was also um, another person um, who worked on it, uh, Forsha. Okay. Uh, and, and he, I think he's in Wisconsin now. Um, those two are my principals that handled my character specifically. That's awesome. That is awesome. Um, but uh, I, I absolutely love part six. I think it's one of the, uh, like I said, the greatest Friday movies. I think it's the most fun to get somebody into the series. I'll throw that on because it doesn't have the boring lulls. You know, there's no, there's no time to get up and go to the bathroom or something. It, it really moves. And I attribute that to Alice Cooper. I attribute that to to the uh, Tom McLaughlin. The, the story moves to the pace of, um, I guess, uh, like the metabolism of a 14-year-old boy. And I think that's, yeah. that's kind of awesome. Uh, one thing about Tom McLaughlin, since you mentioned it, you know, he, um, he, he has written another one here in the last few years. And, if he ever gets another shot to step into that, I know that he's uh, he's both friends with Mr. Miller, and of course, um, he's also friends with Mr. Cunningham on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and he's written one that has got some nice twists in it. He's, he's went on a few podcasts and talked about it. But Tom McLaughlin, you know, he's got a nice resume, including being a professor of film, and you know, he's in a band right now called The Flock which is a band that he was in back in the 60s when they used to open up um, downtown before they would open up and they would open up for the doors. Um, 
so he's kind of went full circle to enjoying his band, but he's still doing his thing as a writer-director. Right. Well, I would love to see him get the shot again. Would you uh, Would you entertain reprising the role? We've had that conversation publicly. Um, uh, he put it out there and then made it public when in an interview he talked about the one that he's written um, with me in mind. And as he said to me, if I feel comfortable in the physicality of it, um, he would love to have me reprise. He has worked. In fact, I will be in uh, England with him in October and Tom Matthews, and I'll be in wardrobe in which we'll be doing photo ops. Uh, with the band. So Tom McLaughlin has seen me in wardrobe in the last probably six to eight months. And physically, structurally, when I stand there, it's like you said, it's like I just stepped off the screen in 1986. Yeah, you um, have the I was, Still, I mean, you, you're you're a tower. You're six four, but it feels seven four. You know what I mean? And uh, right. you you definitely have the build of of the man behind the mask still. And I think that's that's pretty incredible too. I mean, how long? How many years? Is it thirty years now? At least uh, almost thirty. What thirty five? Almost thirty five. And that that's pretty incredible for someone who wasn't pursuing a career in acting, let alone being a horror icon. You you didn't just luck out because you played it well. You did it well. Uh, and you have serviced the fans in a way that you're a fan favorite to this day because when they meet you, you're personal and you tell stories and you remember names. And that's super important for these people. I, I talk a lot about it on the podcast. I grew up a convention kid that has stepped on the other side of the fence. And I'm a, I've been a professional for 20 years. I've worked on major movies and low-budget crap. And I, I love being a professional, but I reminisce about being that fan that the first time I got to meet a Jason Voorhees or a Leatherface, you don't go to a comedy convention where you can meet Tom Hanks or Jim Carrey. That doesn't exist. But you go to these horror conventions and you, you can meet people that you watched growing up or that you're currently watching, like the Rob Zombie film uh, guys, and and you feel like you're accepted into the world of this Hollywood thing that seems so far away from everyone else, you know? Um, and you're really, really good with the fan service as far as that. Like, you've never, you have lines, but you don't ever rush them through and make them feel like they didn't get their moment with Jason Voorhees. And I think that's that speaks volumes to the fact that even though you weren't looking for this career, uh, you, you've embraced it. And, and I remember back in the day when I was like 15, 16, I would go to the conventions and Kane was there at all of them. He always was, but you would never find a Ted white, like Ted white would never be there because he didn't know he had fans. Like he just didn't understand what it was. So it's, it's very cool to see all the Jason's, interact and did that kind of start did when did you realize you had fans when did you realize that if you went to these conventions you were going to make people's day well i you know what going back i'm always humbly appreciative of the fans you get asked thousands of questions and probably there's only 10 12 questions but you're asked thousands of times the most important thing is to show the same importance for the person asking the question for the 15th thousands of times. Yeah, of course. Um, and that's important because of that fan it's the first time. So, you know, with that, I mean, I did a convention. My very first convention was about 1988, 89. 
I just did it on a whim. It was me, Kane Hodder, Laura Park Lincoln, and a bunch of others from other films. And I knew there was a market out there, but when I left the L.A. market and went back into the Las Vegas market and moved into management and executive management, I didn't have the flexibility to take weekends off to go do shows. I mean, you know, I've got a player beating, beating us for half a million dollars, and I'm getting a phone call as a general manager. I can't be at a convention. Uh, right. It just doesn't make sense. So I kind of put everything on a hiatus, and, and I went now and then over that 20-year window, but I really didn't go. I do always say that Kane has been a great, and I use the word ambassador for the series. Pardon me? A hundred percent the ambassador for the for the franchise, you know. Yeah, he not only has he did four, and you've got to give him credit for doing a great job, but he's been out there every weekend, every other weekend for 15, 20 years uh, when, when conventions weren't as popular as they are today. So he's always been out there lining the path that now that I retired from casinos three years ago, um, if I got a gig coming up, I can go. Uh, I was in Sweden in February of this year, which was the last show I did prior to the virus, um, I had people seven years old in front of me getting autographs and people 60 years old in front of me getting autographs and everything in between. Well, I have to, I have to, uh, I'm going to blow the lid on, on something we spoke about earlier. Uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter who you met uh, two years ago when you were here. She doesn't really remember. She was five then. But in that two years, her obsession has become Friday the 13th and, uh, and, and she's never seen it. She's not allowed to watch it, but she knows allowed to watch it when she turns 13 on her birthday, I'm going to watch it with her. Um, But uh, today I spoke to you earlier and we decided that you would come back to the monster museum, July 11th for our three year anniversary, being that you were there for our one year anniversary. Um, and I told my daughter today, I said, you'll never believe who's coming July 11th. And she said, who? And all I said was Jason. And she goes, I love Friday the 13th. So she said, will he give me an autograph? Will he give me an autograph? And I said, I'm sure we can get you an autograph. But uh, well, so, remember, there's, there's, a, there's a symbol why we're doing this. And, and I don't know if you, you heard what you just said. But you of course, one in three. One in three. The first and the third year equals, if you put them together, 13, and guess who's going to be there? Me. Yeah, the man behind the mask himself. And I have to say, last time we had you was our first signing. It was our first dabble into what we – we really didn't know the direction the Monster Museum was going. Was it a costume shop? Was it a museum? Was it a toy place? We didn't know. But since then, it has become this powerful mecca for horror fans and we are here to educate and preserve the art of practical effects. We have uh, we have so much new displays and sets since you've been here last. We've had so many celebrities come. We've had uh, Tony Todd, Tony Moran, uh, CJ, uh, well, of course you, Felissa Rose. Um, the list goes on and on. Uh, so it's really cool to have you come back. And it'll be teamed up with Lisa Wilcox from Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5. And uh, and Nick Benson, who did effects on Nightmare on Elm Street Four and Night of the Demons, so we have a. Uh, it's it's very cool. It's very cool to me that that you're going to be back here, and the fans are going to get to just be blown away on this anniversary party, and uh, and it it'll be a great time. And I appreciate it so much. Um, um, you know, 
I try to, you know, it's kind of my way of giving back because it's kind of like just saying, hey, what if we, I come down, we do autographs, you know, it gives an opportunity to get a B12 shot to the business. Not that you need it, but you're trying to get a, a different footing. Um, yep. And it was the first time we did it. Now you've had multiple actors and actresses at your location very successfully. Um, I did it a few years ago with a, a toy store in Las Vegas. I said, hey, what if I come up on one day and I'll just sign and, you yeah. know, give you a boost? And he was like, well, okay, yeah, that'd be great. And I can tell you the same storyline that since I came up and just did that, uh, he's had everybody from Kane Hodder to Linda Blair yep. and it's been really successful. Um, uh, an associate of mine at a toy store in um, Lake Havasu. And I said, sure, I'll come out there. It's an hour and a half away if I can help you. And he's had a couple other people and me, uh, Michael Myers type, at his uh, toy store. So anything it's- that we can do the way it's grown, not just from comic cons and museums where you know, your mom and pop uh, comic book stores are having horror figures, you know, sitting at a table autographing for the fans. It's become quite a large popularity. It's cool, especially for our crowd, because while we now have the Days of the Dead Las Vegas, there's not a whole lot, unless you drive to L.A., it's very hard to get to conventions for people a lot of times, and it's expensive. So when we have a single celebrity come every other month or so, it allows them to come focus on that one guy. They get to see what's changed at the museum and uh, get some cool autographs. And we had the folks from uh, Child's Play up here, Alex Vincent and Christina Lease. And, man, they packed the house because there was multiples. That's the only time we ever had more than one person at a time. But this time around with Lisa Wilcox, Nick Benson, who used to work for Steve Johnson, he may have even worked on – on uh, Hell's Highway or Highway to Hell, uh, I'm not sure. I'd have to ask him. But uh, and then with you here, that's three cool personalities for people to come see. It's almost like a mini convention. So uh, especially in these times where all our conventions were canceled for the last four months, it'll be uh, very cool. And uh, I can't wait. What it's going to be such an awesome party. So uh, we'll get the news out uh, early next week. Well, when this episode drops on Monday, we'll get the news out about about the signing and, and the appearance, and uh, we'll get them going. No problem. Sounds great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell is a feature film that I feel like is a little bit underrated. I don't think uh, outside video store kids, it's been relatively hard to find. It's one of those movies that I, I rented I don't know how many times. I absolutely love the flick. My mom worked at a video store, so I think we, we got it pretty early. Um, but uh, it stars Christy Swanson, of course, who was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the original. It's And you play the big bad Hell Cop. How did you yep. get that role? Well, that, you know, um, I'll give you two answers on it. Number one, uh, again, I was second choice. Uh, the person that was true story, the person that was scheduled to do the part didn't realize the prosthetics would be worn throughout the entire movie and didn't realize he wasn't going to be seen and after all the prosthetics had been done by Steve Johnson and his special effects crew, he backed out. Wow. So myself and Kane Hunter came walking through the door. Uh, 
you put the prosthetics on, and um, my face is a little more round than Kane, and the prosthetics that had already been created by Steve Johnson and his crew uh, fit me. And again, the rest is history. I put the prosthetics on and went to work. What year? What year was uh, was that movie made? So it was made in '89. Okay. okay, and it was supposed to come out in 90. And the reason it kind of got lost in the shuffle is there was a company called Hemdale. They were getting ready for a national distribution at the theaters, just like the Friday the 13th. I still have all the posters. They sent me like 10 posters that were going out for distribution to the theaters uh, in my garage today still. Wow. I mean, they're in great shape. They're black and white. That's what they were going with originally. And unfortunately, Hemdale bankruptcy prior to the distribution to the theaters. So it never got a national distribution. And it unfortunately sat on the shelves of the library of United Artists and MGM Grand until a few years ago when they threw it out on Blu-ray. It's crazy. I had a copy of this movie, uh, and it may have been a an English copy. I'm not sure. It's old, but I have a VHS because in those days, uh, distribution went to Blockbuster after the movie. So there was a couple put out there, but it never made the distribution for the relationship. I mean, Ben Stiller's got eight, eight, maybe ten seconds in it. That's crazy. Ben Ben Stiller's mother and father are in it. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, yeah. So... It's interesting because I would have never known that it didn't find distribution because this is a movie that around 94, 93, 94, I got a, I had my hands on that tape and I watched, I watched it till it didn't work. Uh, and it, cause I was, I absolutely love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I love that the hell cop was basically like a grim reaper, Freddy Krueger. Like it was just so cool looking, you know? So that's that is, and it's I kind of call it the curse of Steve Johnson because he did so many incredible effects stuff that would end up on the cutting floor or get scrapped or never see the day of light. Um, uh, but I, I got to work with Steve recently, and he's a total artist. He's uh, in his brain; he sees things differently, and um, I definitely attribute uh, those overlapping prosthetics that you wore in that in that makeup were they're seamless. They're perfect. Um, so So there was five hours. I get up around three in the morning sit in a chair and watch MTV videos. And five hours later, I'd be done. They'd be gluing my lips on and I, I'd fall asleep a few times. (laughs) It's so that that wasn't Um, for your face. Yeah. Cause it moved well. It worked well. Um, but, uh, what a, what a cool movie. And, and, uh, uh, a good friend of mine named Jeff Taylor, I don't know if he listens to the show, but he used to make some good bootleg DVDs, and I met him at Days of Dead in Indianapolis, and he gave me a Halfway to Hell, or I mean, a, sorry, Highway to Hell at that time. I, I have recently been writing a comic book called Halfway to Hell that is loosely inspired by uh, Highway to Hell. It'll be nice. I, I will tell you also, you know, it's interesting because like you said, Christy's in it, you know, Christy Swanson. And yep. Patrick Bergen, who played the devil, was opposite of Julia Roberts in Sleeping with the Enemy. Oh, wow. Uh, so he plays the devil in it. So there are some interesting characters. You know, you got Lita Ford, 
And there's one scene with the uh, crosser going across the water to hell. Um, tall black guy, he's seven foot, give or take. He happens to be the guy that played the very first Predator. Oh, he's really? Away since, he's passed away since then. Yeah. Uh, but he was the very first Predator in uh, the first Predator movie. Yeah, the best Predator. So there's interesting people that were in it. So it had all of the, uh, the interesting characteristics yeah. of what could be done. It's just bankruptcy knocked Hemdale on their on their nose, and it kind of went dormant. I mean, that that happens, you know. That's a bummer, but uh, but what a fun flick! So if anybody out there can get their hands on on uh, Highway to Hell, uh, it's definitely worth the watch. And and I think that I mean it's awesome to me that you got to play two very iconic characters, one very well known and one just not known well enough. But uh, but you can't beat the success that you found with Jason Voorhees. And in nowadays you've entered into a new world where you've even uh, stepped into the role of Jason's father and worked in some fan films. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the fan film craze that has happened in the last couple of years? Well, now that I, I retired about three years ago from the casino industry, it gives me the opportunity to be available, readily available um, where I can commit. Uh, about a year ago, I committed to Vengeance, a fan film in which I played opposite Jason Brooks, who played Jason. I played Jason's father, Elias. Elias for That's awesome. And that, that is part of the comics and books that people have always wondered, you know, even with Tom McLaughlin, how the father would play a part of it, kind of like the Tom, Tommy Jarvis uh, syndrome. Yeah. So, I always, thought, I always I mean, thought that when they made Freddy versus Jason, they were going to tie that in that Frederick Krueger was Jason's father. Because timeline, it would have worked, but somehow that got that got lost. So Elias is a uh, probably a more realistic uh, stand-in, though. Yeah, and the you know, thing is, Jason and I are almost equal in, in height. I might be maybe 10, 15 pounds heavier than him. The nice thing is, I grew. A, I'm able to grow a beard, so I grew a beard for four months, uh, as silver as can be, and then they put a long-haired wig on me to give me that. Uh, that old Hunkleberry Rough. look. Yeah. Put me in a long leather jacket. And, um, you know, there's quite a few scenes with me. And then there's kind of a scene with me and Jason that square off. So, staring off. That is great. Yeah, when you get stare each other down, that is, uh, that is excellent. But it was fun. And so that gained a little availability. And then this year, I just finished earlier this year, uh, 13 Fanboy, a Deborah Voorhees film. Wow. And, that's fun because uh, again I get to work. I worked with uh, D. Wallace, very uh, cool. you may know, and of course I was able to work with Laura Park Lincoln. Kane Hodder was there, uh, Corey Feldman, um, and some of the Friday the Thirteenth uh, group that have done films over the years um, have cameos and stuff in it. So that was an enjoyment. I was in New Mexico for a couple of weeks. Are you um, able to talk about the plot of that a little bit? What it is, it, and you'll appreciate it because we've been talking about conventions, is actually the plot is there is a masked fan that's in and out of scenes at a convention, a whore convention, no, no less, and all of a sudden the whore celebrities start dying, and nobody knows who's killing them, but obviously it's a crazed fan. That's cool. That's very cool. 
Um, well, I look forward to that. Do you have any idea when, uh, like, when they plan on releasing it? Distribution. I know they were going for it. Um, it's a fag movie, so they were going to go for oh. it by now. Deborah Lawrence was probably ready to go because, but I think with uh, everything okay. that transpired in the last 90, 120 days, I think that's pushed everything a little bit on the shelf. But my speculation is she'll be ready to go with it by the end of the year, pending everything opens up a little bit. Nobody really wants to put anything out uh, unless it goes directly to pay, pay TV, uh, preview TV, or demand TV, because right now the theaters are just starting to open up and, and with limited capacity. Yeah, it's uh, it's so interesting how I didn't, I wasn't listening or paying attention to the COVID scare at the beginning. I just, I'm so busy doing my own thing and I just don't watch news a lot. And then uh, I was supposed to go to Monster Mania and put Kane Hodder in the Uber Jason suit that I built. I spent a month and a half building uh, and I got a, I got a message uh from somebody I know that said Monster Mania was canceled. And I was getting on the plane. Like, I was headed to the airport at that moment. And I called Kane, and he just answered, you heard fucking right. And, and uh, he was already in New Jersey. And to hear yeah. the Monster Mania, I know you were going to be a Monster Mania as well. When Monster yeah, Mania, that, that's that one of the largest I, conventions. It's a huge convention. So I knew instantly something was really wrong. And then Days of the Dead Las Vegas canceled. And then Texas Frightmare canceled. And it just kept going down the list. So someday, hopefully, I get to put them in the Uber Jason suit. Right now, we're aiming for the next available convention. But we'll see what happens. You yeah, know. he was, in fact, he was going to do yours. And I was going to do uh, the unmasked maggot head, they call it, Jason. Maggot so, yeah. Maggot so we were going to do those for the first time together and individually at Monster Mania in March of this year. Yeah. Um, so everything kind of went sideways on that. But at the end of the day, the, the nice thing is, as you indicated, Monster Mania and Texas Frightmare are the two biggest horror, well, straight-on horror conventions in the United yeah. States. And, of course, you've got Comic-Cons that have a mixture and Spooky Empires and Frightmares, Days of the Dead. They all have uh, similarities, but those are the two primary, primary, kind of like uh, Comic-Con San Diego. Yeah. Uh, but I'm quite confident Lloyd, uh, who is the promoter of Texas Frightmare, and I'm quite confident Dave of uh, Monster Mania will have the next two shows will be, I believe one is in September and one is in August, right around the corner, provided nothing changes uh, economically. And that that's what I'm afraid to even announce um, dates yet to anybody because it, I'm just so tired of telling people that we're canceling, canceling. But I can promise that on July 11th our party is going on. We have been yeah. cleared, so it is it is happening in Boulder City. So if, if you're bummed out that you missed convention times, come out here to the Monster Museum and we'll have an awesome time. But, yeah, uh, we'll have a great time. I will tell you, I, it's interesting. I just posted finally earlier this week my scheduled events for the rest of the year starting in August. Yeah. And within three days, I already had one that was canceled in uh, uh, Connecticut. And they just made the decision. So I already have to put a change on what I posted, which is fine. Um, the nice thing about it is, you know, it's a great show that I was going to go to. Um, it is happened to be the same weekend of 
Texas Frightmare, which I was unable to accommodate this Texas Frightmare because I'd already committed to Connecticut. So maybe uh, if Lloyd has a slot for me, I'll make Texas Frightmare in September. Oh, that'd be great. That would be great. Um, it is a it is a weird time, and and the cancellations come and go, and and then there's announcements, and I don't know what's what's what, and I honestly I don't know who's celebrity wise. I don't know who's comfortable flying and not. So that's what I that's what I think kind of affects things is is who wants to get on that airplane, you know. Yeah, and I'm not sure how we're going to – I mean, we've always had, you know, hand sanitizers are good, but now how do you take a picture with Sam? Um, do you wear your mask uh, when they're coming up to get the autograph and then you take a picture from six feet away? It isn't as exciting as, you know, handshaking with the fans. Or do yeah. you wear a mask as a fan the whole time when you're, or as a, a celebrity and you're only getting a parcel picture? I, you know, it will be new. Everything will be new. At the same yeah. time, the fans will figure out what they like to do, as will the actors and actresses. Well, uh, it'll be it'll definitely uh, something to to work through. But I think the fan base is so strong; nothing will stop them from from attending. And as long as we can find that happy medium where the celebrities and the fans can still enjoy themselves, uh, I think that uh, it'll always it'll. Get stronger and better, and that's what we have to hope for. But uh, yeah, do you have any? Uh, do you have any other projects on the horizon as far as shoots, or or is right now you're just kind of uh, taking the COVID vacation? I think it's the vacation. I think a lot of people are. I just got an email uh, a couple of days ago about a promoter from Canada that's putting together a, a film and asked if I'd be interested in participating in a, in a uh, part of it. Um, and I do believe there are some other people that have approached us, but I think everybody has kind of put everything on the shelf, uh, not just economically and monetarily, but at the same time, until they can figure out how to really get on the sets confidently and put something of quality out rather than just right. doing a semi product that doesn't really meet standards. Well, I have to say that as a long, lifelong Friday the 13th fan, I do hope that they they revisit the series. Uh, I think all the lawsuit stuff has kind of gotten wrapped up, and I hope they revisit the series. I would love to see that Tom McLaughlin uh, script get made. I'd love to see you reprise the role. I, uh, I, I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen in the future for Friday the 13th, but it is so cool that our horror icons are willing to uh, partake in the community. And I, I think that that's, you just can't ask for more. So um, with that, if you have anything else you want to touch on, we can do it. But... You know, I just, I just want to thank the fans for everything they do and coming by the Monster Museum and all the support they've given you over the last three years. And just the horror family over the last actually 50, 60 years, going back to Universal Studios, you know, when you take a look at, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and the mummy and the werewolf. I mean, it's been truly amazing. And here we are, you know, in 2020, and we've got our Leatherfaces and our Jasons, and we've got our Michael Myers, and we got our Freddy Kruegers out there. Yeah, So, and the, and the horror industry seems to be building at rapid speed, you know, with the Blumhouse and all the different uh, – factions of, of fans that have gone on to be professionals and it, it is just so cool so uh, CJ I thank you so much for being a part of the conversation um, 
And right before we go, we want to start asking our celebrities. We always interview these celebrities right to the end. But the one question we never ask them is, what's your favorite scary movie? Friday the 13th Part 6. There you go. All right, TJ Graham, everybody. I'm Tom Devlin. This is Midnight at the Monster Museum. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you.